Welcome to the audio podcast for the main service of Northridge Church. Our hope is that this will be a tool that blesses and challenges you in your walk with Jesus. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, you can visit us at nrchurch.ca or join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until we meet, be blessed and enjoy the word for today. Um, It's a smaller section of text. In fact, I'm going to compact a couple things. You'll see the first slide here covers the first eight verses. So I'm not going to dig into it, but if you want to read more about the persistent, the parable of the persistent widow, you'll find that in verses one day. We're actually going to pick up in verse nine and it goes like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said, two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, let's go back to the top here. That language alone is so descriptive. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And it's almost inevitable that when we think highly of ourselves, we are going to think more lowly of others. And so if you ever catch yourself being judgy and looking at someone as less than you are, I've talked a lot about the alarms in our, in our hearts, but that should be a huge trigger for you. And, and that trigger should point you to the fact that you are identifying with this man who comes in believing that he can trust in himself for righteousness. So he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. In in this parable, both of these men prayed, but both of them did not come to God in the same way. The, The Pharisee went to the temple to pray, but he essentially went up there to praise himself. Uh, He's comparing himself laterally to other men. Now, it's not hard to have a high opinion of yourself when you're being um, kind of evaluative that way, because a lot of times we just see the worst in others. Now, conversely, the tax collector was standing far off, but he, he would not even lift his head. There was a brokenness and a humility to him. Now, where the Pharisee relied on his own power and deeds before God, this tax collector, he relied solely on the mercy and compassion of God. He recognized that he was a sinner in need of God's mercy. So they both go into the temple to pray. They go in, in theory, with the same purpose, but their experiences were totally different. Jesus kind of declares over the two of them. He says that one man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And I think it's important to note that this justification was immediate. 
I joke sometimes, I, I talk about, it's not an application process. When, when the tax collector humbly came before God and cried out for mercy on him, a sinner, this was not uh, a, a form that got pushed to a desk to be reviewed to see if he was worthy of forgiveness. His justification before God, he was seen as just before God. He was seen as righteous before God because he relied on God for his mercy and forgiveness. Conversely, which is my new favorite word in this sermon, uh, we've got the Pharisee who relied on himself and his good deeds. And he measured himself against other men instead of measuring himself against a perfect God. Anytime we look at ourselves and measure ourselves against the perfection of the King of Kings, we're going to see that we are in desperate need of his mercy and compassion. But he compared himself to men and he relied on his own goodness for his justification. And what we know to be true is that nobody can be right before God in our own strength. It can't happen. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to be right with the Father is through Him and through His mercy and compassion. And Jesus kind of wraps up the, the parable to say this, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Essentially, the Pharisee saw prayer and his spiritual life as a way to be exalted. This was his moment to shine, to go into the temple and declare to everybody, yes, I thank goodness I'm not like that guy. It was all about him. In fact, I think I missed in my notes, there was, yeah, th th when the two of them went up to pray, one of them prayed to God, the other one, the Pharisee, you'll notice the use of the word I five times in his prayer. It was all about him. The tax collector, however, Approach God in humility. Uh, C. Marvin Pate points something out that I had, hadn't really noticed in the past. It says this. It is entirely possible to address your words to God, but actually be praying to yourself because your focus is on yourself and not on God. Your passion is for your agenda, not God's. Your attitude is my will be done and not thy will be done. The man was full of praise, but he rejoiced not for who God was, but rather for who he was. It's a pretty condemning statement at times. Let's move on to verse 15. So we're, we're transitioning now out of the parable, and this is kind of now talking about the narrative of what's happening around Jesus. And it says here in verse 15, Now they are bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And this is one of those things where I think the, the disciples just lost sight of the vision for what they were called to do. And they started acting like Jesus' bouncers. And they started protecting Jesus' precious time which is a noble idea, but Jesus needed to rebuke them. He needed to correct them because Jesus wasn't exclusively talking to the men of the, of the day. He, he wanted this word to go out to all of the families, 
In fact, he even elevates children in this moment. And there's something about the way he describes children. I'm going to go into my notes here to say this. Oh, one of the things he talks about is don't hinder them. And to me, I read that just like in the, in the practical. Like, don't stop them from coming to me. Let me lay hands on them and bless them and pray for them. I, I thought of it that way, but it's this, this caution to us that we, in 2023, that we never do anything to hinder our kids from getting to know the Savior. And um, I'm going to be humble for a second. One of the reasons we do student ministries and we do our best at student ministries is so that they don't have to be in here because I can be a hindrance to them knowing God because the way I talk to you isn't necessarily conducive to them learning who He is in the best way possible. And what we do in the back isn't babysitting, just to be clear. We'll keep your kids safe, and Tani is so good about following all the protocols to make sure that we've got the right amount of people in there, and everybody's had their criminal records checked. Like we're, we're very careful with your kids. They are precious to us, but they're not just being babysat. They are being taught God's Word. They're, they're being introduced to Jesus so that they are not hindered or held back from getting to know Him. But he goes a step further. He says, for such is the kingdom of God. Children receive the blessing of Jesus without trying to make themselves worthy of it. They're not like the Pharisee we just described earlier. They come, and we know this about our own kids. Um, there's a vulnerability and a humility to being a kid until our kids got to be adults, they didn't, they didn't worry about our finances. They weren't worried about um, how things were going to work on our homes. They trusted their mom and dad to care and provide for them. So there's a, um, there's a peace, but there's an innocence. There's a, a trusting nature that is innate in most children. And it's not until kids experience some of the hardships of life that they start to become a little bit more jaded. We talked about this last night, where they, they start to protect their heart, and they're less likely to trust because they've had that trust violated, or that trust broken, or they've been let down. But the, a child is this, this picture of, of wholehearted trust, that it's not about them and what they can do. It's about the one who cares for them. And what they can do. Uh, again, C. Marvin Pate says this. Not only did Jesus welcome these little human beings as members of the kingdom of God. He also extolled them as model citizens of the same. Because of their capacity to trust and love. Now, uh, William Barclay talks about how it was the custom at the time. For mothers to bring their children to the local rabbi. So rabbi would have been the Jewish teacher held in high esteem. They know the scriptures. And it would have been common for them to bring them to the rabbi. So it was also this public acknowledgement of Jesus as their rabbi. This is the reason they were bringing the, the children to Jesus. They wanted their rabbi to bless him. And it should be noticed, he didn't baptize them. He blessed them. That's just another little side note. Um... I think I said that already. Let's move on. If you want to read a little bit more about Jesus' views on children, 
you can dig a little deeper into Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. We are going to carry on to verse 18. And here we see the people's response to Jesus' teaching. Again, it must be amazing to them to hear Jesus (laughs) use a Pharisee as as a negative example. Because in Israelite tradition, these Pharisees were kind of held aloft as the religious upright. These were the people who followed God's law better than anybody else. Let's make no bones about it. They walked in a way that was quite pure, following the law, following what God had for them. So they were held in high esteem. And here Jesus tells a parable where the Pharisee is the the negative example. And the tax collector is the positive example about what God wants from us. So that's flipped. People are amazed at that. Jesus, who should be able to rub elbows with the religious elite, with the political elite, chooses to welcome and give his time to children. It's, it's shocking people. It's, it's surprising them. And so a question comes up in verse 18. A ruler asked him, and now this, this person is often referred to as the rich young ruler because we know that he was described as a, a ruler in Luke 18, 18. He was described as rich in Luke 18, 23. And he was described in, as young in a different gospel in Matthew 19, 22. So this rich young ruler asks Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And let me pause there. Actually, can I go to the next slide, please, Josiah, just to show you this this quote from Plummer. It says, there's no instance in the whole Talmud. The Talmud is this compilation of ancient Hebrew writings. And there's no instance of a rabbi being addressed as good master. Uh, they insisted that this was something a uh, good master would have been a term reserved for God alone. So it's, it's curious, and it catches everybody a little bit off guard when he says, good master. And, and Jesus says, why do, you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Then he goes on, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Thank you, Josiah. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then the rich young ruler replied, he says, all these I have kept from my youth, which is debatable, right? But uh, this is what he's, he's saying. There, there's another translation that says, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And again, this is a, a throwback to the parable we just read through where the Pharisee is about doing the good things so that when he compares himself with others, he is worthy of this eternal gift, which you can't be worthy of by your own deeds. And the rich young ruler is like, I've got it all, but what good thing can I do to inherit the thing I don't have, eternal life? And his orientation was off. He was was talking about earning it, right? What is his golden ticket? to eternal life with Jesus. 
And Jesus pauses, and he asks that question, why do you call me good? And I doubt that Jesus was caught off guard. I doubt Jesus lacked any understanding of of why he asked this question. But he drew attention to it. And then he goes on, and this is something that blew my mind. in, In my studies this week, I learned something I had never noticed before. So he goes on, he says, you know the commandments, but the commandments that he listed, if you pay attention, um, actually, can you go back one more, Josiah? The, the, the commandments that he lists here, first of all, he acknowledges this ruler would know the commandments, but the commandments that he, he noted are all commandments uh, of uh, how we interact with other people. Right? Does that make sense? So if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're usually broken down into two kind of forms. And one is, well, we got the list here. It says, don't commit adultery. So that's, a, that's an interpersonal commandment. Do not murder. That's interpersonal. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. These are all how we're meant to behave with other people. And then the rich young ruler, he he says, well, I've, I've kept all those things, which again is, is probably debatable. But in his mind, he is righteous. He is good in this, in this regard. So then we go on to verse 22, if you wouldn't mind going. Thanks, Josiah. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He must have been thinking, Jesus, you don't know what you're asking. You're telling me to give all of my wealth away. You have no idea just how wealthy I am, how big an ask that is. When he heard this thing, he responded, and we need to understand here that this is a specific word for a specific man. This does not necessarily mean that all of us have to sell everything we have and, and distribute it to the poor. This is not an overarching command. This is God's word for this specific man. However, there's a teaching that is applicable way more broadly, probably in all of our lives. It's a principle that has application for all. He says, you still lack one thing. You might have the, the lateral relationships worked out. You might be righteous in relationship with others. But Jesus looked into his heart, and he saw that what was on the throne of his heart was his wealth. That the, his wealth was his idol. His wealth was his God. And he couldn't take that wealth off the throne and exchange it, put God up on it. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't bring that down to put God in his proper place. And again, when we look at the commands, the the law that was given to Moses, about half of the the, um, commands are about relational uh, or human relations, like adultery, murder, uh, stealing, lying, and honoring your mother and father. The other half is about honoring God. So Jesus had established, looking into his heart, he had discerned that he had it about half right. 
but he was missing an essential half. He knew that God was not on the throne of his life. So he said, you still lacked the one thing. And though the man had everything, he had riches, he had lived an outwardly righteous life, he was respected, he had prestige, Jesus could say to him that you still lack one thing. The man had everything, but he knew that he did not have eternal life. And because of that, he really had nothing. There's an old saying, you can't take it with you. He knew in that moment that what he had in this world would ultimately become the barrier to what he needed and wanted in this life after this life. This idea of selling all that he had and then distributing it to the poor. Again, this is a specific call that he is putting on this one life because he needed him to put God first in all things. And it says, this is actually, um, in this version of Luke, it's the only one of the Gospels that identifies the emotion. It, it, ta- it talks about the rich young ruler going away in all of the Gospels. But this is the one where he says he became sorrowful. Luke observes the, the emotional reaction of the rich young ruler because he knew in his heart he couldn't do what Jesus was asking him to do. He could not take his wealth out of that priority on the throne of his life and replace it for God. Adam Clark says this, And what were these in comparison of peace and conscience and mental rest? Besides, he had unequivocal proof that these contributed nothing to his comfort, for he is now miserable even while he possesses them. So talking about all these riches that he has, it's just been proven that all of those can't give his soul the comfort it craves. And so will every soul be who puts worldly goods in the place of the supreme God. If we try to live for the God of money, even though that feels logically that that will give us the most peace in this time and place, you're going to find that your soul will never have peace if God, if your God is money. Okay, let's move on to verse 24. This is still following up on this rich young ruler. Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. If you don't mind, just I will flip again. I've done this uh, in a bad order. Flip to the quote from William Barclay and, and just make a comment here. Quite often the rabbis talked of an elephant trying to get through the eye of a needle as a picture of something fantastically impossible. And Jesus borrows from that talking about the camel going through the eye of a needle. Verse 26 says, Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This question, who can be saved? They looked at this rich young ruler as an outstanding citizen. There would have been nobody in the crowd who would have had a wrong word to say about him, which is shocking. When you think about how big a target people are when they have wealth, everybody's got an opinion about how they got their wealth. Am I wrong? when they are uh, elevated politically. Actually, and we, when he says ruler, we don't know for sure if he is a political leader or if he's a ruler in, in religious circles. 
But either way, he is, he's got an elevated status of, leaders, uh, of leadership. And again, leaders are easy targets. It, it's easy to come under a leader and, and take shots and poke holes at, at their flaws because everybody's got them. And yet, in this place, in this, this place where Jesus was doing this teaching, everybody agreed, like, if he can't be with you for eternity, who can? Who can be saved? And it's a very legitimate question. We see that Jesus, even seeing the sadness in this rich young ruler, who he would have had compassion for, who he would have loved, he doesn't change the standards for discipleship. It's still what we talked about earlier in Luke, where we need to pick up our cross, we need to deny ourselves, we need to die to ourselves, and we need to follow him with our lives. That standard doesn't change. But he points out that riches can be a problem. They can be a stumbling point when they get out of order. This is not to say that wealth is innately bad. To be quite honest, wealth is inert. But the love of money, or when we put, remember we were talking about children earlier, children find it easy to trust their parents, or in this case, they find it easy to trust this Jesus. But when that trust is substituted out for our trust in our bank account and our bank balance, that's when things have gotten out of order. That's when your money becomes your God. And Jesus identifies that money can be a big tripping hazard for us. It's one of those soft spots that many of us share in common. It's funny, I, I sometimes brag about the fact that I just don't care about money very much, which is sometimes I'm just oblivious, but the truth is, is God has provided and blessed our family. I haven't been put in a spot where we're really on our last nickel. And so I can, I can talk about how much I trust God and how my bank balance isn't my God. But you know, I know that there are people who are walking in really difficult circumstances and where money is has become a very important thing in your life. Riches are a problem. Wealth, whether you have lots of it or whether you don't have much of it, it can be a massive distraction in our faith walk. And Jesus acknowledges that. And that's where he gives the quote about the camel and the eye of the needle. He says, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. This is his response to the question, who then can be saved? It is impossible for us to be saved on our own, but with God, it is possible. And it was possible for the rich man to be saved. He just wasn't willing to pay the price. All right, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we wrap up with this last section of Scripture. Verse 28 says this, And Peter said, now this is one of the disciples, and, and he's, he's wanting to give a little bit of evidence for their worthiness of walking with God. He says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. He's acknowledging what Peter says, but he's not elevating him as special. Any of us who are ready to even forsake our closest things, our closest loved ones for the kingdom of God, you will not regret it in this time, but even more so in the time to come.
whatever has been given up for him will be returned to us many times over, both in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. Um, we are ending a little bit short of the end of Luke, but if you want to read more about Jesus uh, foretelling his death, that's in Luke 18, 31 to 34. And if you want to read more about Jesus healing a blind beggar, that's in Luke 18, verses 35 to 43. At this time, we're going to respond in worship. And if I could frame it like this, um, I, I love this calendar appointment for worship. And sometimes that can feel very sterile or rigid. Sunday morning, okay, that is my, that is my time in the calendar to worship God. And it feels kind of robotic at times. Let me kind of re rephrase it for you. This is your pocket of time that you get to stand shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters and sing praises to this God who is on the throne of your life. I, I can't call you all over to my house. Well, I could, but I don't want to. Um, I, I could, we could gather other days of the week. But we've got this time, this moment, to tell the Father how much we love Him, how much we adore Him, how much He is worthy of our praise. So I'm going to invite you to stand and let's sing to him together. And then I've just got a blessing for you at the end. That is the essence of our offering. Like little children, we, we can't necessarily contribute to the kingdom in our own strength. All we've got is what you've given us. The heart that you knit together in your mother's womb, the, the person that you made us to be, the gifts that you gave us, all that we really have is that to offer back to you. So we take this moment, Father, and I, I pray that everybody in your own minds and your own hearts would go through this process right now of being intentional about saying and, and earnestly believing that what we've got, we want to give back as an offering back to the Father. It seems so small compared to what you've given us. But it's everything that we have that is of value, and we offer it to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, while you're still standing, let me speak this blessing over you. And for those of you online, whether you're watching live right now or if you're watching at a later time, receive this as well. The internet can't stop the blessing. Here we go. May the God who gave everything for you inspire you to give everything for him. May this inspiration lead to a generosity and love in a way that represents a loving and generous God. Have a wonderful week. Be blessed, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for our main service. If you want to learn more about Northridge Church, or if you just want to talk to someone about what you've heard on this podcast, please email us at info at nrchurch.ca. We'd love to get to know you better. Until then, be safe and be blessed.